G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Birder's Guide for another fortnight. How are we all? Now my life over the last fortnight, very boring. Well, birding-wise, very boring. Rest of things, uh, flat out. But birding-wise, very boring. I uh, was supposed to have a uh, tour last week, but that got postponed. And so that is now going ahead on Monday. Now that's with a lady who, and her family I believe, who are new to birding, so I'm looking forward to well and truly converting them to the hobby, which will be good fun. Apart from that though, nothing has been happening. I've been too busy doing other stuff. So, let's have a quick look at what everybody else has been seeing. So, things worth chasing around the place. Um, Hudsonian Godwit, Port Kennedy Beach, Western Australia... Adrian Boyle, who I'm actually chatting with, trying to uh, find a time to have him on the show. Adrian Boyle, along with, I want to say Nigel Jacket, but I... Yes, no, Nigel Jacket, found a Nordman's Green Shank near Broome. Uh, Adrian also found another Nordman's Green Shank and a buff-breasted sandpiper on 80 Mile Beach. So good for them unfortunately not good for me but good for them i reckon that's probably about it angus mcnab who i was talking to uh yesterday about a different matter who is up on cape york at the moment the lucky fella um he found oriental cuckoo if anybody's you know interested in heading up to cape york to find a cuckoo uh elliot falls so Around the place, that's about it. Now, I did have a few other things I was thinking about, talking about, but the guests that I have on today, uh, we spoke for nearly 50 minutes, so I don't want to take up too much time. So, let's just get into it. You're listening to The Birder's Guide with Michael Greenshirts. So today, we are talking ghosts, or specifically, the grey falcon type of ghost. Now, I would argue that grey falcons, along with white-throated grass wren, night parrot, perhaps princess parrot, might be up there with the least seen buff-breasted button quail. Speaking of which, I need to get in touch with the guys about coming on and talking about them. Anyway, grey falcon, probably one of the least seen species by birders in Australia, hence the nickname, the Grey Ghost. I've got on the show today Johnny, I don't even, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his last name, it's German, Google it, who is Australia's foremost Grey Falcon researcher. And I got him on the show because I, we were, we were on a tour, Peter Wanders, who is my boss, we were on a tour together up uh, between Adelaide and Mount Isa. Did a, one of the Grassrin tours up that way. And I took a photo of a grey falcon, which we then sent to Johnny. Uh, and it was one of the ones that he had leg banded. And interestingly enough, he came back and said that that leg band made that grey falcon the officially the oldest known grey falcon recorded. Now, I don't think it's very old. I think it's maybe seven years old. But still, it is officially, officially 
the oldest known one on record. So that's cool. I was uh, quite happy to have taken that photo. Anyway, I don't mention that in the podcast, but uh, that's my little claim to fame. So let's chat to Johnny, see what we can find out about the Grey Ghost. So, Johnny, welcome to The Birder's Guide. Fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm just going to take a wild stab in the dark going off of your accent that you're not a uh, born and bred Australian. Very right, yes. Uh, I'm born and bred in Germany. I lived there till I was 42 and then yeah, packed everything up, including the family and moved to Australia. And since then, we are here. It's, that was in 1997. What brought you out to Australia in the first place? Well, that's a bit of a story. I was a structural engineer and had enough of, of everything. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided to change everything except the family and um, was looking for somewhere yeah, to spend the rest of my life. And uh, we had known Australia from one previous trip um, and just loved the place. Uh, so the decision was quite easy and it's Australia. You said you were a structural engineer in Germany. Were you, how did you make that transition from engineer to ornithology? That's not a, that's not a normal directional. No. Yeah. <laughs> yes, very right. I was interested in birds uh, very much all, all my life until then already. Um, and it probably started with watching raptors. So the first book I bought from my pocket money was a book in English, Field Identification of European Raptors. Um, so that may explain to some extent my interest in Australia's grey falcon. So have you always been a birder, even when you were yes. in Germany growing up? And Yes, I always, yeah, since early on I was a, a bird person. Um, I was always interested in watching birds and seeing what they do. And so that has a long, yeah, a lot standing in my life but I never was really what um, I was not never a lister or uh, I was always interested in to understand some of the ecology of, of the birds and why they are different to similar looking birds or similar sounding birds and yeah so what what is uh, you said you weren't a lister or a hardcore birder so you might not necessarily have an answer to this question but how does birding in Germany compare to Australia just in general? Is it popular? Is it not popular? Is it um, a big thing? I don't really know that answer. Um, I was, because I, <clears throat> I was a structural engineer, um, I had very little contact with outside my, my professional area. Um, with other people watching birds. I had a couple of friends, um, mostly in Switzerland, because I studied and lived some time of my life in Switzerland. Uh, but I, I know very little about the ship, the German scene. No, that's right. no drama. So you're here to, we're going to talk about grey falcons. 
Um, but before we get into that, I was I've just had a quick flick through in the last week or so some of the papers that you've written, and one of them uh, says basically here. Where's my notes? Um, what your paper looks at why female birds of prey are larger than males, and I just I thought that was quite interesting. So, do you have a <laughs> is there a quick one minute two minute answer to that or not? Um, I believe so, yes. Um, the answer translates to explanation in, in science. Um, so my, the explanation I suggested was um, if the female is the one who defends the nest most of the time, simply because she is the one at the nest most of the time, then she is the larger sex. And all the other explanations are more complicated or involve different behaviors. Um, so I, I thought from my observation that that you know, explanation came to me in the field when I was sitting at the nest and looking what these birds are doing. And the female is always there and the male is far away, out of hearing range and not returning for hours. And it's up to her and I thought wow if she's if she is larger heavier um, then she has a clear advantage so that must be an explanation yeah and because you're now I might I might butcher this because I'm just going off of uh, memory of a couple of weeks ago because you're one of your um, main areas of focus is natural selection and sexual selection of species is that correct yes correct yeah, yeah. that's my interest yes behind yeah, and so that sort of fits into that yeah so moving on to gray falcons what you're here for first of all how did you decide that you were going to do a phd on birds specifically i mean you you came from structural engineering you wanted to do something different i'm sure there's a, a plethora of options as to what you could have done what made you decide birds yeah when i came to australia uh, I came on a business skills visa because I had my own business in Germany and um, the right category for the visa was business skills. So I had to promise that I start a business and mm -hmm. well, getting out of um, structural engineering, I thought, what could I do? And because my lifelong interest was birds, I thought, well, if it needs to be a business, it could be bird watching tour. So I started a bird watching tour business, and uh, so got interested in the Australian birds in more depth than I had before. And I did a number of reconnaissance trips, and um, also I already had seen about 450 species uh, on previous trips. Uh, and then one client. Uh, requested that I show him a grey falcon and at that time I had seen a grey fal falcon only once by pure chance mm -hmm. so in the lead up to that trip um, I tried to find out how to see a grey falcon and realized there was basically no publication nobody had an idea there was no strategy like finding grass rents you 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 know what to do, but uh, with gray falcons, there was no concept. So the, the person came to me 
who came on the trip with me, we traveled around for four weeks, but did not see a gray falcon. Um, and it was his, the last falcon species of the world he wanted to see and mm. had seen it in six previous private trips to Australia. And so this was the seventh, <laughs> sixth <laughs> trip. And then I realized, wow, the, how can that be that nobody ever studied gray falcons? Mm. Uh, I felt I was the one. I was prepared with, I had a vehicle and sat phone and EPIRB or PLB, how it's called now. And I love their outdoors and I specifically loved the arid zone. So I started that research out of my own and uh, yes, that was mm. long ago and I'm still doing it. Yeah. So how long ago was that? How long ago was the? Did you take that client on a tour? I, I think that was in two thousand or two thousand and one. I can't really remember. Oh, but yeah. two thousand and three, I started in earnest to to begin this project. And in two thousand and four, I had all the permits that I required, which is quite <laughs> quite an achievement, I think. Um, and since then, I yeah, kept all these permits and uh, animal ethics committee approvals for many Australian states, and I'm still having them and still conducting field work. Yeah. So did you did you go straight into your PhD, or did you just start this project on your own back and sort of merge into a PhD later? Um, I did not start it straight away. Um, First, I, yeah, I thought I wasn't quite ready for anything else. I was just simply interested in finding out anything I could about gray falcons. Um, didn't really have a particular protocol. I just was going out there and see what, what can I learn. And then slowly but surely, I thought, well, it might be good to get some expert help in how you gear this up and what you're looking for and um, so started looking around for a um, supervisor um, and I had a good still have a good friend and but he was a bit tight-lipped <laughs> uh, when I finally suggested one the supervisor I finally got he said yes he's a good guy um, he, he actually was his supervisor as well so I sorted that out and yeah, then approached him and he was happy to take me on. And so I did the PhD and I was quite, well, it was very exciting. It was a very stressful period, uh, <laughs> I have to say, but um, I never regretted it. Yeah. yeah. So what question exactly were you trying to answer with your PhD? Um, the the title of the PhD um, was basically uh, by which behaviors uh, or which behaviors allow the gray falcon to main to persist in the arid zone because they live exclusively in the arid zone apart from a few uh, sightings outside the the arid zone. Um, so it's a rather broad approach to all sorts of 
behaviors and anatomical peculiarities that may help the gray falcon to live where where they live and it's a rather interesting journey because i there are a number of things that uh, were actually quite surprising mm. well that's that's good because one of my one of my other questions uh, that i so before we started this chat over the last few days i've just sat down and thought if i was listening to a podcast about gray falcons what would i want to know um and so i've got all sorts of questions in no particular order so uh it's quite handy when they segue into one another but i did have one question here which it applies to quite a few birds actually grass wrens and princess parrots and whatnot and it's a bit ambiguous it might not even be able to give me an answer but the the question I have, and I've thought this a few times, is why would an entire species or even just individual birds choose to live in the desert? I mean, you're a bird, you can fly wherever you want. You're, in terms of grey falcons, you're a raptor, so the chances of you being eaten is minimal. You eat other birds, so you're not adapted to eating one thing that's only found in the desert. You can go wherever you want. Why... Why do they live in the desert? That just doesn't make any sense to me. But I guess, following on from your point, what about them has helped them to adapt to living in the desert? Um, I think they live in the desert because the climate in the desert suits them very well. Uh, it sounds a bit strange at first. But, uh, <laughs> it's not a very good climate. Yeah, but... Um, it's the aridity of the climate. It's not humid. And the way they spend their lives seems to be really geared uh, perfectly for living in the arid zone. It seems that they do not tolerate um, higher relative humidity of the air so well. Mm -hmm. um, I give you an example. They they seem to move only or, or exercise only as little as possible. That means that they don't heat up. And so in the morning when when the black kites are, are on their way before sunrise, the gray falcons just sit there and wait for thermals that could take them where they want to go or need to go without much physical uh, exercising so they don't heat up. Uh, mm -hmm. Not heating up seems to be the key point um, because in the area where they live you you can get heat waves or dust storms and so you need to be ready at, at the drop of a head had to move somewhere far away perhaps, or when a cyclone approaches, mm -hmm. as I had with one of the satellite-tracked satellite uh, individuals, they need to be able to, to move away from the area despite the conditions then. It might be very hot already. So if you then are hot already from what you do anyway the whole day, um, you, you are limited. So I believe that... Uh, yeah, reducing physical and ener yeah, energy expenditure uh, is is the key point. 
so they cannot live in in the area in the um, in more humid zones i won't ask i won't ask you to give away any specific details here but where are gray falcons found like can you find them in every state in australia except i guess tasmania but every state in australia or where are they found broadly oh i can tell you where i found found them mate <laughs> um southwest queensland seems to be uh, a stronghold at least a breeding stronghold of the species so basically the area um in queensland between Boulia, Longreach, Windora, Birdsville, that's that whole southwestern corner, uh, mm-hmm. has most of the time in most years quite a few breeding pairs that I know of. Um, the northeastern area of South Australia also has sometimes a few pairs. WA, the Pilbara region, is is known for for breeding records, and there were a few this year, um, but they are not all the time there. I don't know how far they move. That's one thing I wanted to find out. Northern Territory, yes, uh, too. Um, the northernmost breeding record um, was near. Daly Waters, which is south of Catherine. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, they they don't seem to to move, move further north because of the increasing humidity. Um, what haven't we covered yet? Victoria, very rarely. I would want to see a photo. I think that it, there are a few genuine records, but this is only uh, very rare accidental records. New South Wales, yes, um, that is that is a bit of a, um, a hit and miss thing. There are records in the northwestern corner, like Tipperborough, um, and other records much further east uh, are true too. I've seen photos. Um, they are all west of the Great Divide. Most records, or all records that I know of east of the Great Divide or coastal records are all invariably wrong or misidentifications. And there's one museum specimen um, which apparently has been shot near the coast, but funny enough, this specimen is missing. So (laughs) just proves my point in a way. So all states, uh, except Tasmania and Victoria only as an accidental. I mean, one of, one of the problems with rare birds, I guess, is that people, uh, they're much more likely to be reported incorrectly. Um, so let's say someone sees a, a grey-looking falcon somewhere relatively remote or perhaps not remote. Um, what are they likely to confuse it with and how do you... What's the easiest way to cancel out other species yeah this is a great question yeah and i'm very happy uh, to answer to this uh all pale raptors are have been confused uh for gray falcons um the an easy one is the kestrel they all have a, a really obvious black tail band so if 
that's the first thing. Look at uh, any prominent black tail band, then, then it's a kestrel. Uh, another suspect is um, brown falcon, the light phases of the brown falcon. Um, the brown falcon is very vocal. So quite often when I'm waiting for my gray falcons to return, I, I hear brown falcons and then I look where they are. Gray falcons are, are extremely silent, even at the nest. It's quite common that I that they don't say a word even when they come in with prey to feed the partner or the young. Quite often there's not a word said. So um, brown falcon are very vocal and gray falcons are not. And also brown falcons have, when they glide their wings up in a, in a shallow V and the gray falcons have the wings almost flat. Other suspects, um, of course, the, 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 the two Elanus kites, um, but they are smaller and the wing markings are so obvious um, that it takes something to mistake them. Um, Accipitus, so the goshawks and sparrowhawks, um, that it gets really tricky. Gray falcons uh, have the broadest part of the wing is at the base of the wing, so where the wing emerges from the body. Mm. Whereas uh, um, the accipitus, the goshawks, um, there, when you follow the, mm, the trailing edge of the wing to the body, it's the narrowest part of the wing is, is kind of the narrowest part is at the body, and then the wing gets broader. And this is, if you get aware of this point, it's quite easy to work it out if you see it instantly. Is it helpful, this was going to be one of my last questions, but I'll throw it in here because it fits. If people do find a grey falcon um, flying or nesting or whatever, do you want to know about that? Is that useful to you? I am extremely keen to, to learn about it. Yes, it's very useful to me. Finding grey falcons is still a rare thing finding a, an active nest is still a sensation to me that I've seen so few uh, I, or I see so few every year um, and they seem to move around they don't necessarily use the same nest in subsequent years especially tree nests all the tree nests I know of have been used in only one year and then also the nest looks good the next year or may look good the next year they they don't use it so i this is extremely helpful if people report their sightings to me and thanks to many people doing so um our knowledge about the species uh, increased to a point that um this year the species could be included in the list of threatened species under the EPBC Act, so which uh, protects the bird legally across Australia, which is something great. Also, it's not great that it is threatened, uh, but the, it, it always was uh, as rare as it is today, I think. Uh, but the legal protection is brilliant. So how do people... Uh, get that information to you if they've seen one. Uh, the easiest way is sending me an email 
and finding me on the net is just uh, by typing in Ray Falcon Research or that brings me up very quickly uh, is in the top 10 uh, or my email address is very simple Johnny Bird because I study birds <laughs> uh, so I'm not Dr. Bird <laughs> which people have uh, yeah, started their letter to me was dear Dr. Bird so Johnny Bird <laughs> Johnny Bird at bigpond.com so a rather simple email since 20 years I have this and works a treat, yeah. So, I'm so you were talking about um, they don't like to nest in the same place and uh, <clears throat> quite often you don't find them in the same place. You have, over the years, put some satellite trackers on several grey falcons. What information have you got from that? Um... The satellite trackers uh, are a fantastic thing to study a, a little-known species. Um, I had a couple or three birds that had the tracker on for about two years, which is the time um, that <clears throat> the, the harness is designed to stay on the, on the bird and then the harness uh, falls off and so it does which is really satisfying. Um, the information I got out of is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, they, they seem to move as little as pos possible, just as much as necessary. So they stay, I got the impression that they stay in one area as long as they possibly can to survive. Uh, as long as conditions are good enough to survive and then mm -hmm. when the conditions deteriorate then they move on and they move on only as far as necessary and not further because where the next really brilliant conditions may be is could be very far away so they just uh, mm. seem to to move as far as possible and then Try, try their luck there. So they breed there, possibly, if the, if the conditions are good, but then if the conditions deteriorate, they try to hang on simply by not breeding, and if then it gets worse, then they may move on. So that was a really um, surprising um, information I got out of the, the satellite tracking, and it's very nice to yeah. see that. Out of the out of the birds that you did, you say you put on three, three different birds. Uh, I think the total was ten, but uh, yeah. some birds really. Um, two birds shed the transmitter within the four first four days, so they, mm -hmm. they didn't seem to like it, um, which I understand and I really appreciate <laughs> that they took the transmitter off. Um, other birds don't seem to mind and, and just simply continue what they what they are doing. So the three birds I mentioned were the three transmitters that uh, lasted the longest. Oh, yeah. uh, and so, did out of those three, or even the other ones, how how far did the furthest one travel? Like, did one start in Queensland and end up in WA, or did they all sort of stay in? even if they travelled a long way, stay in the same sort of area? 
yeah, I was very curious to see what they do. And uh, I half expected that they would move around uh, to a different state or across the continent. But so far, this hasn't happened yet. Um, I had one really interesting bird uh, that I tracked in the Pilbara. Um, and that bird stayed in, in a small area for a few weeks or a couple of months. And then it did these enormous reconnaissance trips, uh, more than a thousand kilometers in a few days and just look all over the place and then return to the same area where it came from. Mm. Or it did such a reconnaissance trip and then settled in a slightly different area, um, a few dozens or hundred kilometers, kilometers away from where it started. So, and then yeah, stayed there for another period and did another reconnaissance uh, spout about for for a few days and tried to find other areas. Mm. Or perhaps the bird was searching for a companion, which I don't know. Two years after I put the transmitter on, I saw that bird then with a mate. And I was hoping that they would lead me to a new nest, but this didn't happen, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> this this uh, sort of follows on from uh, traveling around trying to find a mate, but you published a paper in September this year, I think, and admittedly I only read the summary, but you say that the grey falcon is one of the rarest birds and birds of prey in the world, and secondly, even with that low population and a fairly large amount of space that they are spread over they're still uh, the genetic diversity is still reasonably good is that correct did i read that right yes yes that is correct um it seems that they um the gene pool is is one big gene pool so that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the birds from two extreme corners of the distribution mate, but there seem to be uh, a mix of the genes. So they fly around and meet mates uh, of the population in a way that um, there is no, there's not individual confined populations, say one in the Pilbara and one in Southwest. Queensland that would not meet. They seem to be somehow all linked together, which yeah. is a good thing. Otherwise, uh, you would be really concerned about the um, uh, longevity of, of these single populations. They don't seem yeah. to be isolated. And this is very good. Your paper said that the grey falcon is one of the rarest raptors in the world. How many, how many are there? At, what's your best guess? Um... Yeah, that, that is a really difficult question. Um, I believe that the total population, uh, the numbers wobble around a thousand mature individuals. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a really rare bird. If that is true, that is a rare bird by yeah. any means. Yeah, and, and I suppose out of everybody, you've probably seen the most out of those thousand birds of 
anybody else. How many how many grey falcons do you reckon you've seen over your time? Oof. Um, <laughs> Just to put you on the spot. I, yes. <laughs> um, this is this is of course difficult. Yes. Um, maybe I start with. I have seen more than fifty breeding events, so more than fifty times I have been at active nests. Some of the nests, very few of them, at least one partner was the same partner as at a previous nest in, in previous years. Um, but just this gives an idea of, yeah, I, I might have seen over the years more than a hundred different individuals. Mm. Adult, I, adult pets. Yeah, which I would say would be more than anybody else i would say um, i believe too yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> so having seen over 50 breeding pairs and nests and whatnot i don't i don't think it's any um big secret that one of one of the sort of places that gray falcons like is man-made towers you don't mind if i say that do you no that's perfectly fine this yeah, so I don't think I don't think it's any uh, secret that grey falcons like uh, communication towers. Um, and if you're ever driving past one, it's worth just having a look, seeing if there is one there. Now, talking about nests, you have banded, uh, like leg banded, some grey falcons to study, and I've been told that you banded them just by climbing up a tower or two or whatever and putting them on their legs now if that's true you are definitely not afraid of heights because you would not catch me up one of those towers for any amount of money is that is that actually how you put those bands on no absolutely not i'm okay. i'm afraid <laughs> good brilliant uh i'm afraid of heights so i i certainly would never climb the towers <laughs> um uh, I, I catch adults on the ground in the vicinity of the nest and but uh, yeah I'm not interested or I don't do climb nests, uh, trees or towers and may, uh, first I'm on my own most of the time mm. it's a few years now my wife is coming with me which is nice um, but uh, yeah, climbing is not an option for me, so I'm on firmly on the ground <laughs> all the time, which is good. <laughs> so, talking about on the ground, I was reading through—I um, don't know if it was the actual application or a response to the application to the federal government to get their protected status uh, mm. up to vulnerable—and I think I think you were cited as the person who said this but apparently grey falcons will just nest on the ground like just on bare dirt is that right uh no oh, uh maybe, I, no, maybe they, I read that wrong <laughs> but they they rest on the ground so they um they they seem to sleep regularly on the ground even when they can see their nest on on one of the towers or on a tree Oh, yeah. So they don't mind to sleep on the ground or frequently rest during daytime on the ground um, any time of the day, which 
which puzzled me at the beginning. But um, now I have the idea that when at the end of the day, when they when they finish the um, reconnaissance trip or, or their hunt, they don't spend any further energy in even flying to the next tree. They they rest where they are, and if, if it's on the ground, then it's on the ground. And in historical times, this was not a problem for gray falcons because there were basically no terrestrial predators, um, no carnivores that would uh, prey on them. The big goannas and parentes, they are only uh, active during the day, so it's no harm. And uh, snakes track uh, their prey by vibration that prey makes when moving or from, through scent trails. And just landing on the ground and sleeping there, neither uh, creates vibrations that snake could follow or leaves a centre, so they would be pretty safe, except uh, a lucky find by, by yeah. one of the <laughs> So it was pretty safe since historical times, and um, the, but now with the cats, this is a different matter. Yeah, do you, are there is there any evidence? I mean, grey falcons are pretty rare. Is there any evidence that cats? kill grey falcons? Yes, yes uh, there was uh, one cat was shot in a Strebler National Park in, in that southwestern Queensland area and um, in the stomach uh, there were remains of a grey falcon mm. um, and a photo was made available to me and also I had one of the satellite track birds uh, was as all the others probably slept on the ground and almost certainly was eaten by a feral cat mm. i found the remains and it all yeah pointed into the feral cat directions also i i can't really prove it yeah yeah that's but, an unlucky unlucky falcon mm. but that's yeah birds are or well, cats are everywhere these days um and so the the only other thing I read about in that uh, application, which I found interesting, was the fact that you had seen roadkill grey falcons. Now, like wedge-tailed eagles and stuff, I can understand because they're eating stuff on the side of the road, but to hit a grey falcon in your car must be pretty unlikely. Yes, that I, I saw one in Chanda in the middle of, the, the little town Chanda in southwest Queensland. It was, a, it probably was following a, um, a pigeon or so across the road and got hit. Must have got hit by a car. That I think that's the only one that I found dead. But in the Pilbara, there have been a few, maybe two or three, even four cases of grey falcons that um, got hit by a car or truck on one of the highways in the Pilbara there's a lot of mining activity going on yeah. since yeah since the last few decades and uh, more and more tracks are created and some of these have um, enormous amounts of traffic mm. uh, one bird obviously flew into a barbed wire fence and was injured and taken into wildlife care in Port Hedland 
So yes, they they are not always so lucky. Yeah, yeah. So you've been studying grey falcons now for twenty years. I I was going to ask what do we know about them now that we didn't know then, but um, I'm going to assume that basically everything we know about them now we didn't know then. So have you sort of written the book on grey falcons, so to speak? Um, well, even without writing it, uh, <laughs> writing the book, uh, yes, I, 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 I see myself as uh, wearing two hats in a way. I, at first, I my my own active study, my my own field work, and also collating data of other people, mostly bird watchers and, and lay persons, rangers and caretakers who find grey falcons and report their sightings and observations and sometimes they're really interesting uh, to me, uh, which helps me to complete the picture. Without those many people, I would have no chance really to, to finally see the complete picture. I'm particularly grateful to all these people who go through the trouble to find out about me and my work and to then send me their material and which is sometimes yeah of course people are, are worried that uh, I then spread it or put it on the net and but rest assured I never do in the contrary I'm always a bit uh, now there's another record on the internet and yeah they're not all the not only the uh the right people read these messages and then venture out and uh, there was one particular case heartbreaking for me two years ago someone put out um, an active nest on a tree with four young and people were streaming there with cameras and behaved really irresponsibly. I went to the site and saw it and I arrived there in the morning. I was the first one. And then a stream of photographers came and disturbed the birds. It was heartbreaking because you have to understand that in in the arid zone, uh, the young birds, or, or the gray falcons don't, don't seem to drink. And especially the young birds in the nest, they get all their moisture from the prey, mm -hmm. the food that the, the, the adults bring in. But if you disturb the food delivery, you you rob the young of getting the moisture they really need to survive. Um, and that morning, the young didn't get any of the prey. The, the adults were scared of. It was in a tree, so not all that high above ground uh, and I had to leave at the end of the day I couldn't couldn't bear it but most people are sensible and um, do the right thing and leave the birds alone there's always some idiot in every group that's unfortunately just the way it is <laughs> so I have a I have a question that I ask everybody that comes on this show and your um, I don't know what your answer will be but um, I just ask everyone out of all of the places they've been, what's their favourite uh, place to go birding? And I was just wondering, in all of your uh, travels and going through the 
out back in the interior of Australia. Is there any, is there a location or two that just really stands out to you as being spectacular? Uh, for me, this is a very easy answer. Uh, I, I absolutely love the Kimberley. Um, my favorite spot uh, is easily the Mitchell Plateau and the, the Mitchell River, Mitchell National Park. Um, I, I love sitting at um, Little Merton's waterfall and yep. when the sun goes down and just the birds around me and all these noises and uh, all the cicadas and, and the birds going to sleep and I absolutely love that place. So this is easily my favorite spot. I've done a few bushwalks um, along the Mitchell River and the Drystone River. Um, yes, easy, easy answer. No <laughs> great problems there, of course. <laughs> no, it's no. too far north, too far, too humid. Um, but it's an absolutely wonderful spot. Yeah, plenty of other good birds. Mm. Well. Thanks, Johnny, for giving us a bit of your time. Uh, what are we up to? Oh, nearly 50 minutes. Thanks for giving us nearly an hour of your time. Yeah, good luck with all the continuing research and maybe maybe we'll bump into each other somewhere down the road. Yeah, that would be fun. Thank you very much for having me and for yeah giving me the chance to talk about what I'm doing. And all the best to you and your podcast. Very good things you are doing. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Michael. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you found that interesting. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm trying to get uh, Adrian Boyle on the show. We just haven't organized the time yet. Um, and there's someone else I'm trying to chase up. And I'm also trying to get some guys who are doing research into buff-breasted button quails on the show. So hopefully coming up in the next month or two, there'll be some uh, more really good shows. And if anybody is interested in going to find a grey falcon... Let me know, or get in touch with Bellbird. We'll take you out. We'll do some. Uh, we'll do some outback birding. Although maybe not right now. It's probably going to be hot for a while. But uh, I know next year we've got a lot of um, a lot of grass wren tours going, <clears throat> and uh, they're quite good. Quite good tours to be on if you're interested in finding grey falcons, and grey grass wrens, and Aryan grass wrens, and Carpentarian, and Calcadoon, all sorts. Let me know. We'll hook you up. Anyway, enjoy your fortnight. I'll enjoy mine. And until we speak next time, happy birding.